one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. My recommendation today is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to get a free audiobook right now. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 97, Michael Ragave, Emperor of the Romans. Last week we left the Roman army on the run, trying to find a way out of the valley of the shadow of death that was the Battle of Plisca. Men fled in every direction, and crossed through the mountains and into Thrace. From there they eventually made their way to the main roads and headed south toward Adrianople. As the dregs began to coalesce, everyone looked around to see who had survived and who would now be in charge. The emperor's son, Stavrakios, had been carried home this far by his men. A nasty wound to his spine meant that the heir apparent had no feeling from the waist down, and as his attendants whispered, was passing a lot of blood in his urine. You didn't need to have any medical training to know that this was not good. Three other senior figures had made it out alive, and they now huddled together. They were fully aware that the future of the regime rested on their shoulders. One was Stephen, the domestic of the scoli, or domestic of the schools, this role meant that you were the most senior of the various commanders of the Tachmata. In time, the domestic of the Scoli would often be seen as second in command to the emperor on campaign. Another was Theoctistus, the former quaestor. He had been one of the senior figures who'd helped Nicephorus depose Irene, and had then become one of the emperor's closest advisers. Finally, you had Michael Ragave the emperor's son-in-law. Affable and uninjured, men began to look at Michael and wonder if he would make a better ruler under the circumstances than the imperial prince. But Michael, in an indication of his character, refused to break his oath to the imperial family. With no other option, the assembled soldiers hailed the wounded Stavrakios as their new Vasilevs and carried him back to Constantinople. 
Once home, though, discussion about the succession only intensified. It was obvious to everyone that Stavrakios would never walk again, and his condition did not seem to be stabilizing. Stavrakios knew what was going on. He'd been elevated in August, and by October knew his days were numbered if he didn't act. He called Stephen to his bedchamber to discuss the future. The emperor knew he could die any day. No one had any idea how to treat his injuries. And if that happened, he wanted his wife, Theofano, to take over the government. He knew that men were preparing to push his family aside and proclaim Michael, so he asked Stephen to blind his brother-in-law. The domestic left that night, promising to take care of it, but instead went straight to Theoctistus and Michael and agreed that now was the time to do what they should have done back at Adrianople. They summoned the patriarch Nicephorus, who agreed with the decision, and soon Stavrakios could hear his own troops acclaiming a new emperor down the hall. Acting quickly, the former emperor had himself tonsured and made a monk in the hopes that no one would further mutilate him. But no one was planning on that. The conspirators came personally to assure Nicephorus's son that they meant him no harm and they had only the empire's best wishes at heart. He was moved gently to a nearby monastery where he died three months later. He was still a young man and had been emperor for about two months. I think it's worth dwelling on the shock that these events caused. The heaviest casualties at Pliska had fallen on the Tachmata and the imperial officials. This meant that for those who lived in Constantinople, it seemed like there had been a massacre. Dozens of men you knew personally, or had seen around the streets, had not come home. Imperial officials you'd begged for permits or favours once upon a time were gone. Looked at coldly, the battle was not a total disaster. Many provincial soldiers had survived. Whole theme units had made it out unscathed, and thanks to the initial exchanges, the Bulgars had probably lost more men across the whole campaign than the Byzantines. But because so many high-ranking Romans had fallen, the feeling in the capital, where opinion mattered most, was that a truly existential disaster had taken place. Worst of all, of course, the emperor had been killed and his son crippled. No surer sign of divine punishment could be imagined. Though God had aided them, the Bulgars loomed large in the popular imagination as barbarians of unspeakable brutality. For the Lord to switch sides so suddenly suggested that our sins were angering him considerably. This was therefore an ideological crisis that had to be dealt with. The empire needed to get back on the right side of God one way or another, and this is the scenario which faced the new emperor. Michael Ragave was from a noble provincial family. That surname seems to indicate Slavic ancestors. His father served as an admiral under Irene, but was exiled after taking part in one of the many attempts to elevate the sons of Constantine V at her expense. 
In keeping with the coups will happen nature of Byzantine life, his family did not become outcasts as a result. So it's no surprise that Michael was able to secure a marriage with the daughter of Irene's general Logothete, Nicephorus. Both the first and last name of the emperor are worth noting. Up to this point, as you may have noticed, Romans didn't often have surnames or family names. Towards the end of last century and across this one, we will be hearing them more and more. It's a trend to keep an eye on, and we'll discuss it uh, during our next tour of the empire. But that first name, Michael, is actually the first non-Roman and non-Greek name to be attached to an emperor. Men like Vardan the Armenian and Apsimar the Admiral had been encouraged to change their Armenian and German names for more traditional ones, like Philippicus and Tiberius. Michael, a Hebrew name, was thought acceptable because of its biblical fame. To sum up what we know about the man who has just become Michael I, I'm going to quote directly from historian Warren Treadgold. The new emperor was in his late 30s, looked young, healthy and handsome, with a round face, a dark complexion, curly black hair and a beautifully groomed beard. He had had some experience in government, but not enough to tie him to Nicephorus's unpopular measures. Mild-mannered, pious, generous and honest, he had no real enemies. The church, the bureaucracy, the army and the people supported him. He lacked only the judgment and decisiveness needed to make even a minimally competent emperor. I'm always suspicious when the verdict of history is so unanimous, but in Michael's case it's hard not to conclude that he never wanted the job and was definitely not suitable for it. Once crowned, Michael was determined to try and please everyone. For a start, he began giving away as much of Nicephorus's money as he could. He obviously gave a donative to the army, as was expected, but then he gave one to the whole civil service, and then he gave gifts to the patriarch and the higher clergy. He also gave money to the widows of the men who died at Pliska. Most of these handouts were pretty understandable. The problem is he didn't stop there. Gifts flowed out of the palace at every opportunity. The Achia Sophia was particularly blessed with regular offerings from the generous emperor. Initially, I think Michael was trying to cleanse himself of associated guilt with Nicephorus's greed. The Battle of Pliska was widely understood to be punishment for something. The most common sin associated with the dead emperor was his greed. So his son-in-law was determined that no one could accuse him of the same. But if that was a wise move, he soon gained a reputation for being something of an ATM. Press the right buttons and you'll get a handout. Nor did his eagerness to please limit itself to the financial sphere. Michael also allowed many of those exiled by Nicephorus to return to imperial service. Obviously, he welcomed the Studite monks home and even brought Theophilus into his inner circle. But he also resuscitated the career of Leo the Armenian, one of the generals who'd taken part in Vardan Turkus's rebellion. We'll get into the reasons why Leo had been exiled next week, but for now, all you need to know is that in two years, Leo 
will depose Michael. Amongst the deputations in the palace hoping to get something from the new Vasilevs were the Franks sent by Charlemagne. They had come to formalise a peace treaty and, of course, have the emperor agree that their emperor was worthy of the title emperor. The agreeable Michael wasn't about to disappoint them and sent them home with gifts and Byzantine diplomats ready to confer his greetings in person to King Charles. Michael's advisers agreed that they were willing to concede Charles the title of emperor. After all, they'd accepted the titles of caliph and before that king of kings, which were essentially the same thing. So when the ambassadors stood in front of Charlemagne a few months later, they duly hailed him as emperor, much to the delight of the Frankish court. In a prototypical Byzantine manoeuvre, though, Michael's government simply changed his official title to avoid seeming on a par with a Western barbarian. On coinage and letterhead, Michael and his successors would be referred to as Vasilevs Rome, Emperor of the Romans. Charlemagne can call himself what he likes, but as far as we're concerned, there is only one Roman Emperor. On that trip west, the delegates also visited Rome to normalise relations with Pope Leo, who obviously had been persona non grata since crowning Charlemagne. While there, the embassy asked the Pope to decide on the matter of Joseph of Cathara. Yes, with Nicephorus gone and Theophilus back, everyone agreed that Joseph must go back into exile for officiating at the illegal second marriage of Constantine VI. Are you still with me? The patriarch Nicephorus had been bullied into welcoming Joseph home, and so it was too humiliating for him to publicly change his mind. So instead, the Pope was called in to render a separate verdict, and the hapless Joseph was sent back into exile. Having got his way, Theophilus was once again standing tall as the most revered churchman in Byzantium. This caused friction with the patriarch, who naturally felt he should be the loudest ecclesiastical voice in the emperor's ear. The vacillating Michael, hoping to make both men happy, did not deal with their disagreements well. For example, one problem which the emperor Nicephorus had not acted on was the growing strength of heretics out in the eastern provinces. The main targets were the Paulicians, who I've mentioned before, but we won't focus on right now. Out from under the emperor's thumb, the patriarch Nicephorus demanded stern action, suggesting that the order be given for these malcontents to be executed. The malleable Michael agreed. Soon afterwards, though, Theophilus sent word that he was deeply unhappy that a churchman was recommending murder. Surely these people should be given time to repent. Embarrassed by this logic, the emperor reversed his instructions, instead merely banning the group from practicing their faith in public. Indecision and a lack of clear vision were not problems which the Bulgar Khan suffered from. Krum knew that he had to press his advantage as quickly as possible to get the best peace settlement for his people. After celebrating his victory, he spent the rest of 811 recruiting new soldiers. And as soon as spring 812 arrived, he set off for Thrace. 
His men surrounded the town of Develtus, just a little way south of Anchialis on the map, and set up a siege. News trickled back to the capital, where Michael dithered over how to respond. Military action was needed, but it took the emperor until June to get an adequate force together and march them north. Halfway there, scouts informed them that Develtus had fallen. The population had been marched at spear point across the border into Bulgar territory. Presumably, they were going to replace the farmers who the Romans had slaughtered the previous year. When Michael's men heard the news, they nearly went into revolt. They blamed the emperor for their late arrival, and in order to mollify them, the Vasilevs handed out fresh donatives. Cash in hand, the soldiers calmed down and grumpily returned to Constantinople. There are several things we ought to note here. When the Romans marched north, they took with them men from the Anatolian theme armies. It's not clear if some had remained in Europe, or if they'd all gone home and had to be shipped back again. If it was the latter, then it explains the slow response to the siege. I think Michael deserves some sympathy, if that's the case. Because one can only imagine the state of mind of the army, as they were told, Hey, we have to go back and fight the Bulgars again. The emperor couldn't risk going north without numerical superiority, and he had no military experience, so obviously after Pliska, he wasn't taking any chances. Having gathered a reluctant army with very low morale, the news that Develtus had fallen nearly destroyed the bonds between ruler and ruled. I imagine it was a strange cocktail of anger and relief that swept over them. Under these circumstances, the emperor had little choice but to bribe the men to stay in line, he had no moral authority to cow them with. However, the decision to march home, prudent as it was to forestall mutiny, damned 75 years of imperial progress. The citizens of northern Thrace had been understandably scared when Crum invested their neighbouring town and deported its population. But when they heard that Michael was leading his relief force home, they were petrified. With no one coming to their aid, they felt defenceless against further Bulgar attacks. Refugees poured out of the border region, fleeing south for a safe haven. The forts which Constantine and Irene had worked so hard to establish were abandoned. Anchialis, Philippopolis, Veria, all stood undefended, the farms which supported them empty. Further west, the new colonists on the Strymon River also began to pack their bags. Some of them were people who'd been forcibly relocated by Nicephorus, and they now jumped at the chance to cross back to their Anatolian hometowns. In the wake of this, Crum moved in and occupied the forts. As the first wave of refugees hit the Theodosian land walls, the emperor's popularity took a nosedive. Inactivity or cowardice were unacceptable in the face of enemy aggression. But from a certain segment of the army and establishment, a different criticism was levelled at Michael. It wasn't so much his personality that was the problem, but his theology. The reason the Bulgars are in the ascendant is because of our veneration of the icons. An iconoclast preacher named Nicholas was gaining a following in the city, 
and then members of the Tachmata hatched a plot to overthrow the emperor and replace him with, wait for it, one of the sons of Constantine V. The poor, tormented brothers, all blind and in exile on a nearby island, were spared the further indignity of being dragged back to the capital, as Michael finally acted. The conspirators were put down, and Nicholas the Preacher was arrested. There was even good news from the eastern border. The sons of Harun al-Rashid were still at each other's throat, and so Roman troops had managed to destroy the border fort of Camacha. Leo the Armenian, the new stratihos of the Anatolikon, had also distinguished himself by crushing a small band of raiders. Soon, though, the emperor was jolted back to reality as peace terms arrived from Crum. The Khan was offering a relatively generous deal. He wanted a return to the border that had been in effect at the time of Leo III. This meant that the Romans would lose no more territory. They just wouldn't be allowed to reoccupy Anchialis, Philippopolis or Veria. In addition to the new border, Crum wanted a very modest annual tribute of clothes and dyed skins, established rules for trade, and an extradition treaty. This last point was to be the one which caused the most trouble. What Crum wanted was an agreement that any officers or officials who tried to switch sides would be immediately arrested and sent back to their rightful sovereign. This caused a lot of discussion amongst Michael's inner circle, which included Nicephorus and Theophilus. Both men argued that this was unacceptable because most Bulgar nobles who fled to Constantinople were then baptised as Christians. To agree to their return to pagan territory was a betrayal of their faith. This is what Theophanes tells us, they said anyway. It's possible that the Roman military were also unhappy at this idea, seeing as how they relied heavily on informants and deserters to let them know what was happening across the border. Perhaps more to the point, Michael could not sign a peace treaty after a Roman defeat. It was too shameful. Now you might say, wait a minute, we've seen loads of truces signed with the Arabs, and usually they came on the heels of raids into Anatolia. Which is true, but the Arabs were accepted as a rival on the same level as the Romans. There was much less shame in agreeing a temporary ceasefire in an eternal war, but the Bulgars were barbarians. Their victories were temporary ruptures in a world where the Romans were dominant. For Michael to accept peace on their terms would be unworthy of an emperor, a delegitimizing moment he could not afford. Crum had not offered terms from a peaceful posture. Instead, he threatened that if the treaty was not signed, his army would take Massembria, the last Roman fort in northern Thrace. I've put up a picture of modern uh, Nispar, forgive the pronunciation, where you can see that the fort was only connected to the mainland by a very narrow isthmus. The Bulgars had been practicing their siege warfare. The deserters from Serdica had plenty of advice to offer, and when the terms were rejected, they began bombarding the walls of the city. A month later, they took it. No imperial support had been sent, and inside, Crum found good spoils, including boats outfitted with siphons and liquid fire. Though, as far as we know, he never used them.
Michael hunkered down in the capital for the winter and hoped for better news from the new year. Sadly, none came. In February 813, some Christians who'd escaped from the Carnage reported that Crum was going to launch a surprise attack on Adrianople. The city of Hadrian was the biggest in Thrace, and many of the refugees who'd fled south had ended up there. Michael led the Tachmata there immediately to forestall an attack. Then he gave the order to have contingents from the theme armies transferred back to Europe for another showdown with the Bulgars. You can imagine the reaction when this order reached the Anatolikon or Obsikion. Men who just stopped having nightmares were being asked to return to Europe. They had no faith in Michael as a leader and communicated no good vibes to the new recruits travelling with them. And sadly, they were right to have no faith in the emperor. Inexperienced in military matters, the Vasilevs had called them hurriedly to Thrace, where they duly gathered, but he didn't lead them north. They sat idly in their camps for a month, eating the local population out of house and home, and becoming bored and surly. Men complained that they could be back home attending to the spring planting, rather than wasting time here. By May, Michael finally led them to Adrianople, but he was widely mocked for the perception that his wife Procopia, who was travelling with him, was making all the decisions. Again, the army encamped for a month at a town called Versinicia and waited for the Bulgars to arrive. In every Byzantine field army manual, it says that a wise commander should not let his men stay together in one place for too long. It always leads to laziness and seditious discussion. Michael had brought together a large force. He would outnumber the Bulgars comfortably, but he had no plan. He probably hoped that he could intimidate them into agreeing peace on his terms. Crum arrived in the area on June the 7th and was wary of the size of the Roman army. So he camped a good 25 miles away to make sure he couldn't be overwhelmed. Again, Michael made no move for about 15 days. It was a hot summer. Men were uncomfortable. Disease was breaking out. There were water shortages and supply problems. At this point, Michael's generals were in his ear, urging him to do something. The Strategos of Macedonia, John, was the most hawkish. His theme would have to live with the consequences of Bulgar aggression. So he wanted to attack them right now. Leo the Armenian, Strategos of the Anatolikon, also supported this move, though less assertively. Eventually, they forced the emperor's hand. The army lined up for battle, and John led his wing forward to attack. Michael commanded the centre with the Tachmata and Leo the left wing with the Anatolic troops. Despite the odds being against him, Crom duly lined up for battle. This is what Nicephorus had wanted all along, and still the Romans had a good chance of overwhelming their enemy that day through sheer force of numbers. The initial assault went well, with the Slav infantry pushed back by their Roman counterparts. But Michael hesitated to join battle, and as the Bulgar cavalry began assaulting the theme troops, Leo the Armenian left the field. His Anatolian troops retreated. Seeing this, the Tachmata turned and fled, 
an embarrassed Michael and his officials chased after them. The Bulgars surrounded the theme of Macedonia, who were either slaughtered or routed. Crum couldn't believe what he was seeing. He didn't order his men to pursue because he assumed this must be a trap. The Romans outnumbered him. Why would they run? But soon enough he realised the truth and his riders set off in pursuit, collecting a bounty of abandoned weapons and armour as men shed anything that was slowing them down and sprinted back toward the capital. Those on horse could make it home, others ran to the nearby towns and hid inside. Quite what happened at Versinicia is hard to say. One reading of the situation is that the theme troops fled on their own accord, and Leo decided to try and prevent them from losing cohesion by leaving with them. They seem to have retreated in some order and made it back to Constantinople with a minimum of casualties. There were probably many raw recruits in that army who'd never even seen Europe, let alone a pitched battle. They'd suffered a months-long campaign of drudgery, and they now saw the Bulgar cavalry in all its might, and they lost their nerve. Another interpretation, though, is that Leo betrayed Michael. Later sources would suggest that the general had a deal with Crum, that he led his men away to undermine the emperor's position, and that the slow pursuit of the Bulgars was because the Khan had agreed not to hurt the Anatolic troops. On the one hand, this later version of events comes from iconophile sources, deeply hostile to Leo, because, spoiler alert, once he becomes emperor, he will restore iconoclasm. But on the other hand, it would explain this bizarre capitulation, and sadly, the totality of Leo's career makes it hard to discount accusations of treachery. Interestingly, Michael himself doesn't seem to have blamed Leo. As the emperor made his way home, he was filled with despair. He recognised that he lacked the ability to be an effective military commander, and he left the troops under his command to stay in Thrace with Leo. When he arrived back in the city, he was told that he had essentially handed his fate to the Armenian, whether he'd meant to or not. Michael seems to have been keen on abdicating, but of course this didn't do much for his family or his closest advisers, who begged him to stay in his post. Dithering till the end, Michael did nothing, until Leo arrived at the gates with the whole army. Back in Thrace, the army was of one mind. Michael was incompetent and Leo should become emperor. Leo demurred, which was the expected show of modesty, before accepting this lofty burden. And one of Leo's sub-commanders, Michael of Amorian, another of Vardan Turkus's supporters, angrily demanded that his friend take the honour. Once outside the gates, Leo sent word to the patriarch, asking for his blessing and explaining his actions in the interests of the state. On July the 11th, Michael and his whole family accepted tonsure and prepared to dedicate their lives to Christ. Unfortunately, the emperor's three sons represented an unacceptable threat to the new regime, and so each was castrated before their exile. 
The family was shipped off to various island monasteries nearby, where they would live comfortably. If you were going to be overthrown, this was probably the way to go. And it may be that Michael knew this, and left the troops in Leo's command to avoid being violently seized. Apparently the ex-emperor would live on into his 70s, and one of his sons would grow up to become the patriarch of Constantinople. Michael was about 40 at this time, and had ruled the empire for just under two years. Michael I is a sympathetic figure. He clearly never expected nor wanted to be handed imperial responsibility, and sadly, he really wasn't suited to it. Next week, a very different character ascends the throne, Leo V, the Armenian. Before I go, a couple of things. For a while now, PayPal has not been offering the option to buy episodes using a credit or debit card. Instead, it's been forcing you to register with them. Uh, Well, now the option is back. So if you want to buy any of the sale episodes or a subscription and you don't have PayPal, then we should have you covered. I also want to play you a clip from this week's Audible.com recommendation. Uh, This sets up the whole book. Mind when, with yet another penetrating glance of his flashing eyes, he asked me, Why is it that you white people developed so much cargo and brought it to New Guinea, but we black people had little cargo of our own? It was a simple question that went to the heart of life, as Yali experienced it. Yes, there still is a huge difference between the lifestyle of the average New Guinean and that of the average European or American. Comparable differences separate the lifestyles of other peoples of the world as well. Those huge disparities must have potent causes that one might think would be obvious. Yet Yali's apparently simple question is a difficult one to answer. I didn't have an answer then. Professional historians still disagree about the solution. Most are no longer even asking the question. In the years since Yali and I had that conversation, I have studied and written about other aspects of human evolution, history, and language. This book, written 25 years later, attempts to answer Yali. That's what Guns, Germs, and Steel is about. Why is it that some human cultures developed faster than others? This made a big impact on me when I read it. It explains so much about civilization by pointing out the simplest of things. I guarantee it will make you say, oh yeah, of course, more than once. Randomly, one of the facts that I've always remembered from it is that zebras injure more zookeepers than any other animal, because they can't be tamed. Find out why, and if I've remembered that correctly, by going to audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. That link seems to be redirecting me to the UK site, so do try it in whatever country you're living in and get a free book along with a month-long trial of Audible service. And uh, if you're thinking of doing this for the first time and you think, oh, wait a minute, what were the other books that you recommended? Then go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com and look at the very top of the page where there's a link to Audible recommendations. Recommendations.